1: I said to Hank Williams How lonely does it get Hank Williams hasn't answered yet But I hear him coughing Oh.
2: told me I've done a bad thing. Now, Empress, you've been very, very, very creative regarding this program because you're concerned that our two listeners will not ring in next week and pledge money for the 3CR Radiophon for Radical Australia. Is that correct?
0: Well, you know, concern plus just a gentle reminder this week, I think, uh, it is Radiothon next week. So uh, we just, uh, 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 maybe, uh, I've, I've been editing a few little bits and pieces together to uh, sort of remind uh, our listeners uh, uh, of uh, why Radical Australia is on air.
2: Uh, look, I understand Irene Bolger said she was going to come in and drop in next, next week. Say hello to us during Radio Fond Week and she's worth at least five bucks.
0: Exactly.
2: Uh, yeah, because, look, we'd like to raise a grand. It's not much, that's wouldn't we? We'd we prefer two or three or four, but a grand would be enough and I'm really I'm really amazed at your creativity. You know why I'm amazed? Why? Because I'm totally non creative. I wouldn't have thought of anything so, so extraordinary. So, who have you got today?
0: Well, I've just got, um, we've got about, uh, I think, six different voices here, and mm. they're all sort of representing different sort of aspects of activism that we've covered. Uh, there's uh, homeless activism, disability. Uh, drug positive, union activists, you name it. Um, and so I've just edited... What, what? We've done all that stuff over oh, the past year. We've had some really, really amazing guests and some really effective community members come yeah. on this show. And and so I just thought I'd just sort of edit them down into little little packages so that get not only get the gist of their politic but mm. also a little bit inspiring.
2: Uh, I've, I've just been inspired by you, Dale, and I've just had an idea. I think for... From after the radio Radiophon, every new guest, we'll give them a little certificate. We'll call it the Order of Radical Australia <laughs> because <laughs> most of them don't get a, you know, a Queen's Honours. <laughs> so we'll give them the Order of Radical Australia. I'll get something designed over the next week or two. And from now on, Order of Radical Australia. Put it up on the wall. Yeah. Let the kids know.
0: Yeah, fair enough.
2: All right. Let's start off. Well, all
0: right then. Uh, let's have a little bit of a listen. We we had a chat earlier on this year to... Uh, uh, of someone who three CR knows very well, um, who's volunteered here for a while, uh, Lottie Stein, who's ah. very very active uh, when it comes to working with people with disabilities and advocating for their rights.
2: It was pretty pretty embarrassing when Lottie walked in. I knew her when she came to three CR, and she was about eighteen or nineteen. I was about forty,
0: and you still couldn't get her name right.
2: That's right. <laughs>
0: I think that's just your shtick, isn't it? <laughs> oh
2: well, it could be. You know, you may have caught me out there, Dale. All
0: right. Well, anyway, um, yeah, we've just got a few minutes of, of just a little bit of what Lottie uh, what Lottie gets up to, but also uh, just to give you an idea of some of the activists who've graced our microphones.
3: And my interest was always around disability rights, history, and that sort of arena my area is acquired brain injury as a community inclusion and leisure specialist I guess the philosophy is whereas you're rehabilitated in the areas to just get you functional we look at after injury what were you doing before that you that you loved that was just for your own pleasure and who was in your life friends what did you do and how can we build that structure Going back Community development is Sort of a theoretical Framework and it's about Working mainly with communities You can adapt some of the Philosophies to how you do your One on one work with people But um, it's about communities Having, leading Their own change and Push for equity and equality And self determination Radicalisation So I guess community development worker would build up their sense of self-empowerment and basically work to put yourself out of a job. Look, it's given me knowledge. It is very political in terms of looking at where the inequities lie and the history of it and policy and how everything intersects and plays out into, you know, why People are marginalised and socially, economically disadvantaged, and societal attitudes. The challenges for me is just not not working with the people I'm working with. It's the attitudes in the community and the nonsensicalness of of bureaucracies and the support. I'm doing the air quotes that are supposed to help and the criteria for whether you fit within that group and the arbitrariness of of that. So I was working on something to try and address in a small way a systemic issue, which is young people being discharged to aged care facilities. Yes,
2: that's still a big issue, is it?
3: Oh, it's humongous. The yeah. problem is there are some people being discharged that you might imagine in your head someone um, in a wheelchair can't move, can't speak, can't do anything. That's the person being discharged. You are seeing people with cognitive issues where their family won't take them. That's right. There's nowhere else for them to go. They and might, They
2: may have violent behaviour, disinhibited behaviour. Yeah.
3: yeah. And they're being... Discharged aged care facilities. I think people who are within the age range for aged care facilities, it is a horrendous system to go to. There's no choice. Mm. You do go there as an end of life, but I think it also hastens their end of life.
2: So what did you like about 3CR when you were here?
3: It's open. It's radical. I met a lot of people who were... I guess different, like myself. I got a great education here, and I've always felt welcome, and it might go with what's happening at the time, but it hasn't changed. It hasn't corporatized. It still prioritizes the community and community voice. It feels like homes. I'm
2: Greer and you're listening to 3CR, Treaty Now. Well, Dale, what can I say? That brought back some interesting <laughs> memories. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's amazing. You know what the, What I like about Radical Australia? Usually when you're on radio, it's all about you, but Radical Australia is all about the guest. And the trick is, as you know, is you've got to extract interesting things. Occasionally you come in to steer people because they're getting a bit boring, you know. <laughs> but, uh, look, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with the quality. I think one day, and I reckon we've got enough material, we could even put out a book for 3CR, you know, on Radical Australia, you know, interesting people that have uh, come on, on the show. Absolutely. Got, you know, maybe if there's a volunteer out there, somebody who can actually is in the <laughs> publishing world, I know a few people and maybe they've got some time and they could actually get this stuff transcribed and uh, put in Mm. a book form. Because I think it gives an insight into some really interesting people.
0: There's some amazing stories that we've been privy to Mm. because they've been kind enough to share their lives with us. And, And I think that's one of the nice things about Radical Australia for me is I learn so much. Every week there's just something some some more enrichment to be gained. That's right.
2: You're halfway through the interview, and they "By the way, I'm adopted."
0: All right. <laughs> <laughs> bang! All right. Who's next? Okay. Well, let's have a listen to uh, oh, a lady who's, uh, who proves that you know, just because you know you're getting on up there in years, doesn't mean um, you're not still an active, vibrant member of the community. Um, Helen Vandenberg has been incredibly active when it comes to environmental issues around Melbourne and um, she's just relentless. She's unstoppable. So uh, I've just edited together a little bit of what she had to say when she was on the show.
4: Dad's stories about the Depression poured out and because he would promised Mum he wouldn't speak about the Depression, so we couldn't find out about it till she was dead. Yeah. And then a whole lot of things that had mystified me about my parents just clicked in. My dad's sense of justice, his indignation at the way banks treated people, and... I thought when I heard him, he sounded right, so I kind of believed him. But other people mocked what he was saying about the banks. These days, everybody loathes banks. Banks. Uh, He thought the AAL day was fantastic. He uh, believed in unions. You know, he stood his ground for what he thought. Mm. And um, one of the things I remember most about Dad was, um, because I used to get sick a lot too when I was a kid, so I'd be home at awkward times for Mum and Dad. And I remember Dad coming home early one day and talking to Mum, Mum saying, Tom, I don't know why you bother. They're not listening to you. And he said, Rani, it's the principle of the matter. So that night round the, well, we called it tea table, mm-hmm. not dinner table, um said what does principle mean (laughs) and they sort of looked at each other like she's been listening in again and dad just said well it means it doesn't matter if another person is more important than you Um, uh whatever it is doesn't matter if they're more important rich or anything if you're right you must stick with it dad was into politics and so that was discussed at home and dad was pretty much a labor man And I didn't think it was fair that the kids I was teaching weren't getting a fair go, so there needed to be a change in funding. We got into... um, Well, we were keen on folk music in those days and protest songs. Movement against uranium mining. Because it's clearly stupid to mine uranium. And before that, though, let's go back to 75, I injured my back and I had to spend a lot of time resting. And this is in 76. So while I was resting on the couch, I heard a lot of shows on 3CR. Yeah, in March 76. I thought when I get up from this couch and I can walk again properly, I think there's a lot of things that need to be be done out there and I should find out how to do, you know, make a contribution. The rights of gays and lesbians, equal Mm. rights for women, Equal pay for women, the uranium issue, looking after the natural world instead of just raiding it all the time, things about living simply, and the union, the plumber's union on a Saturday morning, Um, that was good. Um, I joined the Labor Party for a short time, 79. I didn't last very long. I became a secretary, went to a weekend where they trained you on how to run your local branch, went back Mm. and said, we're doing it all wrong and this isn't right and you're not supposed to sign up, people don't come to meetings and... So that group improved, but then we were passing little radical motions like get rid of the packaging industry because that's just mm. an environmental hazard. And then suddenly we weren't a very popular little branch anymore. And then when I, Yoss and I, voted against the um, Bob Hogg amendment to say we can have three mines in Australia under labour policy, mm. and um, this, the person who'd taken over the branch had refused to take my membership he said, "Oh no, pay me later, pay me later," and I didn't twig what he was nah. up to. And then he tried to say people who haven't paid aren't voting. Yeah. And then at the end of the meeting, I got up and said what I thought of that strategy. But we formed the Rainbow Alliance, and and I learned a lot of organising skills in that. Um, it had wonderful policies. Its participatory democracy policy was wonderful. Its mm-hmm. recognition of Aboriginal rights throughout Australia, the need for a treaty, and sovereignty was fantastic. I was really proud of all the policies that they developed, but a lot of the people who joined it weren't very political, and so they didn't know when you needed to act politically like in a state or a federal election. Mm-hmm. So that drove me a bit nuts. But anyhow, then, of course, Kennett came into power and everybody who knew anything about organising was welcome back in their local community all of a sudden because, you know, you weren't a terrible radical. You knew how to say... No, and in our case, to a toxic dump in Nidri Quarry. So suddenly I went from that person on the edge who no, none of the neighbours were comfortable with was that wonderful woman. A number of people knew Yoss because Yoss looked at the paddock out the back. Yeah. Nobody was doing anything about it. It was a thistle paradise, so he just started chopping down the weeds and planting. And then we'd found out about the organ pipes and we went down there and... There was a public meeting held at the local school and the only two people who turned up who were not on the committee were Yoss and I and we had the Victorian botanist there and he explained geology and the Western Basaltic Plains. So we got involved in that. That was 1972.
2: Uh-huh.
4: So he'd started on Springalia Reserve behind us and so some of the neighbours had said, what are you doing, and they started to join in and then Keeler council d- decided after many years they give him 30 plants a year. They wanted 30 because he could maintain 30, 30 and right. he could keep 28 to out of the 30. 30 right. right. So that's all. And you only do what you can sustain. Strain, that's right. People liked him like that and they kind of tolerated me because I was with this lovely guy. Oh, and that's... then suddenly the fact that I said things abruptly hmm. or in a straightforward manner was an asset. Because I just said, I'm going to stand in front of a truck and they're not coming in through Spring Island Reserve. Now, how dare they try and come through Yoss's work? Yoss had spent years out there. He'd had a major accident. He Mm. he had had a lot of pain. He was out there making a contribution. And they were just going to put a road through there and they were going to give everybody toxic dust. By this time, we'd been involved in the leaded idea um, because we were the Western Suburbs Rainbow Alliance. I found out that the EPA was Environment Pollution Authority. It's okay. going to change under the new Act, so it? it's, right. really good. It's, it's, good. it's really good. good. It's going to be really good in the future. It's going, well, it's going to be a lot better, they anyhow, right. because we're going to have a duty of care not to pollute, and that's cheaper than cleanups. A Superfund site in America takes about 10 years and 100 million, and we've got a Superfund right. site equivalent in Tullamarine Toxic Dump. Yeah. It's bad enough that under the EPA Act, the land, the water and the air can be seen as places suitable for dumping in. That invariably leads to a cost in health of both the people and all species, and that is unacceptable.
2: What about the Tullamarine Toxic Dump?
4: The 10-Year Saga. There was a hole in the ground. The Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Works... Decided could have a planning permit without any community consultation for an industrial waste dump. And the EPA, in its grand wisdom, wrote the licence conditions. No odours offensive to humans and no impact on the waterways. Anyhow, none of that was being adhered to. The people there organised and protested, and the state of play is that we've raised serious doubts about the latest proposal by Clean Away the Company who say that monitored natural attenuation, that is the bugs in, in the ground will eat the toxic oils and it should be left there. And the EPA had already said it should be pulled up and that was eight years ago. Yeah. And so we've said no, 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 no. And um, the EPA have um, let us choose the consultant this time mm. and we've chosen Stephen Amter from the US. He's in Washington because he's got... 25 years experience I think with hunting polluted groundwater and then we're getting a review of what the company proposal is. 39 hectares 39. It's, it's leaking directly into the aquifer which is the deep aquifer is 45 metres below and 25 20, 20 to 25 metres is the upper aquifer and we have got um, the chemicals the groundwater is going through the site. Uh, we're in fractured basalt so there's lots of cracks and places for the water to go out and it's Transporting the chemicals offsite, and it's already at the border of the residential. It's admitted to be at the border of the residential area and in the long-term car park of Melbourne Airport, but we believe it's probably under people's homes, and we're a little bit concerned because it off-gasses vinyl chloride gas, which is odorless and carcinogenic, and people are a bit concerned that that could be coming under their houses. And because gas is lighter than air, it comes up through the soil. And everybody else says, "Well, well, that's not much of a risk." And we say, "Who chooses our risk? We do, not you." The US EPA had a little leaflet in 1988 was when they decided every dump always leaks. Yeah, Yeah, well, go figure. And then they had this one in the 90s that said a fresh spill can be eaten if it's one kind of oil. Bugs will eat it pretty quickly. Fair enough. This is highly contaminated, and we've got chlorinated solvents, PCBs, dioxins, furans, TCE. That's a lovely chemical. Are you suggesting
2: up. all these chemicals are going to kill the bugs?
4: Yes. Oh. Uh, not me. The no. US EPA said well, that. I actually agree with that part of their argument. Of yeah. course, when we say that, we're cherry-picking. Yeah. But if the company picks a different part that says bugs can eat it, mm. and they don't think about it needs to be fresh, mm. they accuse us of cherry-picking. So I just think, well, cherries are nice.
2: Well, they are, <laughs> as long as they're not poisoned. Now...
4: Well, unless they're organic, they will be. In 2006, that's when the Tuller Toxic dump started up again. And then the people who'd had the first group dropped us dropped us a bundle of archives mm. about how or their fights and their health concerns. And so we joined... The Friends of Steel Creek had been over the year before saying, listen, we're a bit worried about your dump leaking and causing a problem for our creek because we've got a little high heavy metal readings. Are you going to go for an extension? Because we were all so fighting at the time, the hat and the Wingy thing. We were part of the Melbourne Coalition. And we said, and if you put your hand up for an extension, we'll come here and we'll fight you with everything we've got. And they said, oh, no, no, it's all right, Helen. We don't want Mount Tullamarine. You know, we're only interested in post-closure. Then they put in just before Christmas for an extension. All hell breaks loose. You can't walk away from Tulla. Tulla is going to be a chemical cocktail for 100 to 200 years. And our EPA Act has not protected us. It's licensed pollution. And the next Act is going to have a duty of care to prevent pollution. Yeah. So, although I've bashed my head against a brick wall since 1979 with the EPA, I believe that there is the goodwill, and we just need the money from the government to have, and the inquiry that happened was really good and its recommendations are good so if we can bring that about future generations can be saved a lot of the pain that we have had Stephen mm-hmm. Lester wrote on a photo for us when he came yeah. out to speak at the National Toxics Network in March 1997 and he wrote together we will win so Jos- that sounds good we put that on our yellow notice mm-hmm. board in yeah. the park together we will win and then you Jos- got the fun of changing it, together we won.
2: Excellent. Well, you're right, together is the key, isn't it? It is. Together. Well, you that can't do it by key.
4: yourself, and besides that, it'd be boring.
2: No, you have nobody it's to the, argue with.
4: Well, it's the others that, that yeah, you learn from, from That yeah. you know, because it only works if you're a team.
2: Hi, my name is Lex Wharton, and I listen to Tree cr and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its Radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Sorry, boys and girls, it's not just about listening. I'm going to tell you a little story about 3CR, which is actually true. Now, I wonder if you know that 3 Companies own 98% of the print media in this country. Hmm? Mm. 98%. That's just quite extraordinary. Three mm. companies, News Limited, Fairfax Media and APN News. Isn't that extraordinary? Now, 3CR was given its licence in 1975 and started broadcasting on the foot of July 1976 for one very good reason. The Whitlam Labor government believed that it was being crucified by the corporate-owned media and what it attempted to do is give individuals and groups and collectives and uh, the ability to broadcast on air and broadcast their own ideas, their own messages, their own news, create their own culture. And this was one of the most important things the Whitlam Labor government ever did was uh, provide and it. And was, it was a political act to break the control that the corporate-owned media had on the dissemination of information and opinion and news in this country. And that's why 3CR was formed. But in order to be independent you cannot rely on government funding and the radio fund is an exceptionally important part of three CR's fundraising efforts and we need to raise two hundred and twenty thousand. You can relax (laughs) you can relax, young lady, you can relax Empress, you can relax young gentleman out there. We don't have to raise two hundred and twenty thousand for radical Australia. Only two thousand. What do you reckon?
0: (sighs) Two thousand. <laughs>
2: Come on, a good bottle of champagne is worth two thousand, Dale. Mm. You know that.
0: Oh, it's it's change you'd find in the couch at Malcolm's place.
2: Well, you wouldn't find it in the couch. You find it the dog kennel you know, <laughs> to play with. Yeah. So next week, mm. the microphones are open. We'll be asking you to ring in and donate. And you know, this is the funny part about it: if you earn money and you want to emulate our Prime Minister (laughs) and Mr. Murdoch and Mr. Packer and the lady, Mrs. Court, I think that's her name. Murdoch, what's her name? The rich lady, Mrs. Court. Care factor nil. Yeah, but the thing is, you want to emulate them and you want to be a philanthropist, (laughs) you can donate to the Free CR Radio Fund and receive a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Can you imagine that at the dinner table? You could say... I listened to Radio uh, Radical Australia on 3CA, and I received a legal, legitimate tax deduction of one thousand dollars, and I legally <laughs> minimise my tax to the tax percentage that corporate Australia pays—three yeah. percent.
0: Okay, lovely.
2: So next week, remember nine four one nine eight three double seven and nine four one nine zero one double five. Ring, ring, ring. Pledge, pledge, pledge.
0: Yes, but you can also, uh, if you if you can't make it actually on the day, you can. Donate earlier or pledge earlier.
2: You're but, kidding. Yeah, no, no. We <laughs> through have the, the technology, web, Through the web. All well, that garbage.
0: <laughs> yeah, all of that palaver. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, all right, well, let's have a listen to another. Uh, this is just a little short one from uh, uh, 3CR's very own Sederiki, who. Uh, Sederiki, Sederiki, features on uh, ruminations. Yeah, the, our, our, yeah, our programme. I remember.
2: For... He's gone back to Fiji.
0: I'm, I don't think he has yet. No, no right. he's still working. He better go,
2: much. or he's going to die. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, here's a little bit of uh, little bit from Seder, and then I think uh, we might go straight into another another couple of voices. Um, well, we'll just see how we go.
5: I went oh. back to study in seventy six. Oops, wasn't me. Village
1: life. It was very different. It was. Uh... Like communal, see, everyone looks after everybody else. Wake up in the morning, breakies, and the, they, they get uh, sorted out. So you're going with these people today to here. So we take you out to teach your things. When you're young, you, you, you're following along, but you don't, later on you realize, oh, it took me there for me to know that, for me to learn, you nothing know, experience. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like yeah, uh, fishing, yeah. growing food, and what type of food, what type of soil, and what type of medicine, little, they pass on to, people, to kids this leaf will do this for you. Uh, and if you have a scratch, it, bang, grab that. And from then on, you know oh, that does this. It's
2: getting started early. You know, see. And what type of accommodation did you live in? Oh,
1: thatched
2: houses. Thatched houses.
1: Yes, uh, reed, uh, made of reed leaves. We lived like a uh, whole family together, granddad and grandma. Right. Uh, first, uh, the eldest leaves always, usually live with them. Uh, <coughs> Right. with the oldies and the rest build their own houses around and right. move out here. Yeah. Right. Some move out to their land, their plantation, because they live They have land out there. Right. So some of them migrate out there right. yeah, to look after their own families. Right. But the right. elders always live with right. the old people right. at home in the village. Yes. Right. It was different, and I saw changes in life as uh, politics came in, the changes in uh, education yeah, and uh, governance. And a, a lot... How to survive, you know. How to observe and body language. I learned very early in life. I can tell away something. <laughs> that's wrong with this person? Huh? When you're young, you learn very fast. Yeah, for survival, you know. You want survival. It wasn't fun, but later on in life, you feel good because I learned a lot from it.
3: This is David Rovics, and you are tuned to three CR eight fifty five a.m. Melbourne, Australia. Step three
6: is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true That if
5: all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do And everything can
2: change And we're back We're back, Dale Yeah,
0: we just had a little bit of a listen of Sederiki's experiences growing up in a village in Fiji
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, But now let's, let's move on to something completely different
2: Completely different. Completely. What we have a Martian.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> well, no, not quite. But a white boy. <laughs> a white boy. All right, that's
2: unusual. A white boy. Okay, here we go. But
0: uh, this is um, this is uh, needle and syringe exchange worker uh, Andy Jim to, with a little bit of, um, I guess, uh, drug positive uh, politics, uh-huh, which uh-huh. is again. Another opinion, another politic that will never be heard in the mainstream. In the mainstream, because it goes against their agenda. Mm. You know, mm. their agenda mm. is to keep us separate, to keep us othering each other, mm. so that we can't unite. And um, I think Andy makes some good points about that.
7: In a closed society, people make no distinction between a social law and, and, a, and a physical law. Mm-hmm. You know, law of gravity, law of ringing someone after you get a present—they're of mm. equal weight. Well, of course, they are. <laughs> and, and, and I guess, um, you know, I, I didn't... Uh, when, I, when I became aware of, of these the arbitrary nature mm. of these rules, uh, I hadn't mm. read Popper at that stage. But, you know, that's very much something that, you know, struck me pretty early on. 1988 was sometimes referred to as the second summer of love. Suddenly ecstasy appeared mm. on the scene, and I was quite enamoured of that and of the music scene around that. So I used to go to a lot of the big kind of gay warehouse parties in Sydney that, mm-hmm. that were on places like the Horden Pavilion and stuff and mm-hmm. thousands of you know mostly gay men completely um, off their faces and dancing to um, clubby, club music, which um, I didn't think I would like, but I ended up liking dancing and it was kind of how I found my body was mm-hmm. through dancing. That idea of a liberal education and, and learning for its own sake in order to understand the world we live in, um, you know, that was possible. In mm-hmm. a way that it's much harder these days. You know, on the one hand, I was, you know, extremely nerdy and, and academically inclined, but on the other hand, you know, I really wanted to get into the, the juicy bits of life. It's, um, common for people to discount insights they might have into the nature of reality or themselves when they're high. Um, unnecessarily so. Um, uh, you know, I was always happy to kind of test those mm-hmm. ideas and feelings out. It's a mistake to limit yourself to the rational, you know, that there's more to being a conscious being than that and there's this visceral reality of being a, a meat machine that i found it important to engage with, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not be just a head on a stick. I guess social laws arise for a purpose, but those um, purposes aren't always... Uh, friendly to the individual Mm. and sometimes those original purposes get forgotten and then you just get this right application of Mm. of um systems and and practices without really any
2: goes back to your high school experiences with authority
7: well yeah i mean you know the the Mm. most trouble i ever got into at school was um forgetting mohawk Mm -hmm. because of the threat to the school English. (laughs) (laughs) About the arbitrary application of authority. Like, uh, that's something that I saw on a daily basis. That's a big basis.
2: word, arbitrary application of authority.
7: Yeah, where, yeah. where, where authority is wielded to, to let you know where you stand, not mm-hmm. for any other purpose, not mm-hmm. for an educational yeah. purpose mm-hmm. or a safety purpose. It was mm-hmm. purely about mm-hmm. about that. I did this factory job... And I come back and I just thought, I can't do this work. I can't do this. I have to do something that's meaningful, you know. I got this work um, working with adults with intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. And um, and I did, it did feel meaningful. And, and was, again, an insight into a group of people who in our society are very, very undervalued and dehumanised. And the, the pay for that, like I was getting paid less to work with people Around teaching them social skills and living skills than I was working in a hardware store three years previously, and I did all these different placements at different um, drug and alcohol related places mm-hmm. in Sydney, including Newtown Needle Exchange. And of all of them, that was the one I thought I want to do that. That's what I want to do. Needle exchange. Needle exchange. And so when I got to Melbourne, that's um, you know workwise, that's what I wanted to do. Unlike all of the other aspects of alcohol and other drug work, it doesn't start from the premise that drug use is wrong and you need to stop. Hmm. It actually says it's not good or bad, it just is. And you're entitled to make your own choices and bodily autonomy, that idea of of harm reduction where you can't just arbitrarily decide the quality of someone's life based on the the drugs that they use. This is actually ridiculous and so this is a way of working around drug use, which just says, you know, it's just people and Mm. what do people need. It is community development work. It is about finding out what people want and need and then trying to adjust what you do and what you do as a service to meet that. Logic doesn't really play a lot in... In deciding things at a political level, That's like it's right, really, it? it is about it's about yeah. people and relationships and power, and mm. not really much to do with what's the right thing to do and how can we do the best for our community. Like that actually has very little to do with how things get done. And yeah, it was mm. quite an eye opener. Yeah, but, but yeah, ultimately, I would hope that we could have a society where all drugs are legal. Mm-hmm. You know, that it's not um, this um, dichotomy. I mean, basically. It's a start of beginning to st- tell the story, whereby we can show people that the way that drug users are treated in our community is rank prejudice and bigotry, as as equal to racism or sexism or any of the other things that are protected by law. That you know, as a society, we say, you know what, it's not okay to treat someone differently because no, it's of their fine. cultural background. The benefit is inclusion of of everyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's what it comes down to because otherwise um, the drug users are the other right. and, and, and they're not included. And, and so if you don't include them, what are what, the negatives? What are the negatives? The negatives are things get worse for them mm-hmm. and then that has a knock-on effect on, mm. on the community around them because, um, you know... That's when people get desperate and that's when people do crazy stuff. And so um, violence, um, crime, you know, even acquisitive crime, getting your house broken into, um, get, getting robbed, um, these things increase the more that you exclude this group. From society and they decrease the more that you include you know john howard actually increased funding for needle syringe programs during his term because of a return on investment report that was <laughs> prepared for him oh, there
2: is return on investment yeah.
7: people don't understand that yeah. in terms of personal yeah. health in terms of the mm. community in terms mm. of mm. containing mm. disease so decriminalization is an excellent idea yeah because um because taking taking a drug is not it's not a crime i mean in what sense of the word could that be a crime it doesn't it doesn't even
6: make sense And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
2: What a naughty man he (laughs) is. What a naughty man he is. Look, if you want to encourage that type of behaviour... Donate to the 3CR Radio Fund. Donate to Radical Australia tomorrow, uh, next, next Wednesday, 4pm to 5pm. Give us a ring, 94198377. If you can't ring, go on the website, 3cr.org and uh, you'll, .org.au, and you'll see all the ways you can donate money. And remember, every donation above $2 is a legal, legitimate tax deduction. Make Rupert mad. <laughs> Make Turnbull mad. Make Shorten mad. Donate to
0: keep 3CR on air. All right, let's have another listen to another voice that we've had on. Uh, here's Theresa Greenmark.
5: I went back to study in 76. Due to extracurricular activities, I took a bit more than three years to do it. I got involved in student union activism or more broader political act- activism. Yeah, were the big issues. Well, there were lots of battles, of course, at the AUS, those intense times. In fact... A lot of the current and less current um, members of parliament were part of the whole student union scene in those days from both sides of the chamber. They got to, you know, have their training ground free, of course, because we were all post-Whitlam privileged young people, which, Mm. despite a lot of things about the Whitlam government, I'll be forever grateful for. I would never have... I think done a tertiary education wouldn't i wouldn 't wouldn't have, have gone into debt no, i wouldn't have countenanced going into debt, so I feel very privileged to have been in that window where mm. we had that opportunity. Mm. My father was part of the socialist left, so you know and as you know, apart from the you know sectarian Catholic Protestant thing. Within the Catholics, there was also the very big tension between the progressives who aligned with the Labour Party and those who broke away with the DLP and the groupers. Yeah. And um, I used to remember we would come home from church on Sunday and Dad would make sure we all sat down and watched Point of View with Bob Santa Maria, so that he could yell at the television <laughs> and point out to us what an idiot he was. Right. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so, I guess we grew up with that. We grew up with Dad being a unionist, yeah, you know, yeah. an active unionist. So, mm-hmm. he was on like the committee of the Shipwrights Federation. So, it was just part of the discussion that occurred. Impressed. All right. I sat the Federal Public Service exam, and after numerous offers of various departments, which didn't take my fancy, I finally got an offer that still didn't take my fancy. And I said yes, because I thought. I really need a job. Right. I ended up in what was then the Department of Industry and Commerce, mm-hmm. working for customs. And I was like, oh, no, customs. But I then found out this is actually a very interesting department for a socialist because we're bringing a lot of government revenue. We deal with tariffs and, and trying go- to protect industry. Okay, so this was customs. I remember my first union meeting... Not long after I started, in the canteen, it was a very strange event because our, our local customs branch was run by groupers, old DLPs. And, of course, it was in the days... This is for, public servants had never gone on strike before. There was this view that you worked for the crown, for the queen, the king, whoever was reigning at the time, and it was almost tantamount to so, treason for a public true. servant. To go on strike. I I remember this debate in the cafeteria and people were talking about the possibility of going on strike. And there were these other people doing the legendary speech about how we can't do that because of who we are. And I just remember sitting there listening and going, what are these people talking about? For me, it was just like, this is weird. Why are people saying that workers can't go on strike? Do you know what I mean? I was just incredulous. So I guess I just reacted emotionally put my hand up out of anger, and then whoever was chairing the meeting goes, yes, young lady, what would you like to say? (laughs) I thought, oh, my Lord, I've got to say something now. (laughs) It was purely emotional reactive, you know. So I just got up and gave a spiel about how the only thing workers have is their labour, and the only thing we have to withdraw is our labour, regardless of who we're employed by, and sat down and went, oh, my Lord. Because, of course, in those days... Up until then people got allocated to government departments based on their religion. So you had to put your religion on your application form mm-hmm. and customs was a Catholic department. That's tax right. was I think there were a lot of Masons at the tax That's department. Exactly. So anyway, after this meeting there was a group of other members who had been planning to start a little reform group and they all came after me after the meeting and said, Teresa, come and talk to us. <laughs> The rest is kind of history. The next time elections came around, we ran a little ticket. I stood against the delegate in my area who, apart from being useless and right-wing, was also a sexual harasser, so that was an extra motivation to knock him off. And we gradually, you know, moved the department to be a progressive group within the union. And I also then got very involved in our union. So this all started late 70s, early 80s.
2: 30 years a unionist.
5: Well, I've always been a union member, of yeah. course. Um, yeah, it- and I've worked in and around the union movement or been a rank and file activist, mm. I guess, since then, really, apart mm. from different breaks here and there, doing other things in still- the community sector. It's incredibly tough. And I also think it's, well, we're just seeing the effects of, you know, neoliberal conservative, slash-and-burn economics and ideology. And, you know, if you really want to get into conspiracy theories, like, you know, the fact that the federal government basically told Ford or Toyota that they could piss off, I think you could, if you wanted to, run an argument that the government is also targeting highly unionised industries. So, you know, you've mm. got auto that's going to be over by the next year. That's a huge chunk of our membership. Shipbuilding is another highly unionised I think that one of the biggest challenges for this country is that we're rapidly losing a sense of community, that we are very much in the grip of the me individual ideology, that, you know, the old Thatcher stuff of there is no such thing as society. For me, that's one of the biggest challenges for unionism in this country is that people are losing that sense of the collective, of society, that we all look after each other. And people are struggling people are struggling economically because obviously we deal with unionised workplaces most of the time. But there are real horror stories going on out there in ununionized workplaces that people don't believe are actually there. I mean, I was speaking to a woman recently who um, was made redundant from a highly organised workplace, one of ours, has been doing some casual work in another workplace, who spoke to the state government inquiry into casual labour that's been going on, spoke to them for an hour about the workplace she's been working in. She told me that there was one member of that inquiry in particular who by the end of it was holding back tears and they were like going, I can't believe this. And she Mm. was trying to explain to them this is what's going on out there everywhere. So a lot of our members who are losing jobs out of auto and other places, then going to other ununionised workplaces, they're getting the shock of their lives. They can't believe it themselves. I think if you want to be an activist and you want to be part of the revolution, then you've still got to dance and have fun and laugh at the same time. Because otherwise, why would you want to join if it's all boring and serious? You know, you've got to have it's got to be fun. Yeah. And let's face it, it should be fun because we're trying to work towards a better future,
2: mm.
5: and that's surely a fun thing, isn't it?
7: You've got
6: This is Dick from Subhumans. You're listening to 3CR, a radio for you, the people next door, the people next door to them, all the way around Melbourne the people who are so sick of watching their mainstream media that they need to turn on the radio and they find this. Keep listening, you'll learn something sooner or later. Cheers. One, two, three.
0: And welcome back. You're listening to Radical Australia, a pre-radiothon special where we're revisiting some of the voices that we've heard over the past year in the hope that it'll encourage you to help us stay on air for yet another year. We have got, we have a radiothon show next week. So please do tune in next week and pledge a couple of dollars to keep 3CR on air. Now, we're going to finish off today with a little bit from... A very special and important uh, important woman who's, uh, well, I'm just so impressed with her work. I'm, I'm actually kind of spewing that I wasn't here when she did the interview, but, uh, well, when she had the chat, sorry, we don't do interviews. But um, I'm going to play you a little bit from Maurice Hanare, who uh, does a lot of work with um, homeless and cooey folk down in Frankston and all over Melbourne. Um, and she had a a lot of important things to say. Uh, so
8: please, enjoy. My mother is a yordi lady lady. Yorta, Kamarajanga. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father is Australian, mm-hmm. uh, but of Irish heritage. Even though my mother was a, a yordi lady, she was a very educated lady. Mm-hmm. Picked on a lot in that at school. Another curry lady. And mum used to have to stand there and make acknowledgement of the Australian flag yeah. and they wouldn't do it and they wouldn't wear shoes so they're always in trouble those two at the back of the Kananook which was known as freshwater creek it wasn't Cannanook until the men come in and started dredging no. and then became dirty slushy water no. and that there were a lot of humpies around in those days at that part um, and humpies also up at Morty why were there humpies at that particular because that's where they lived Right, and this is yes. this, is, this is in and Melbourne. And that's why there's still mittens there and yeah. stuff like that. Right, yeah. right. Mm.
2: So you had a lot of the Aboriginal
8: people still living in, in yeah. a semi-traditional way. That's probably. right, yeah. yeah, until they were told to move on, of course. We were treated very different. We were just told we were scatterbrains and no use, you know, you going in to learn the piano or no use you going to, to learn certain things, to be in a choir and that because you you just wouldn't understand anyway and we got called snotty nosed kids and had our hair cut off mm. because lice were going around in those days and but i know mostly the children that had hair cut were the kuri kids mm. Well, I was torn between religions, I can Mm. tell you that. And like in my days, you were taught more about the damnation of (laughs) everything, you know, rather rather than the love of Christ. You would talk about horrible things, you know, and the devil would get you. I can remember uh, a book of uh, a baby on a water lily leaf and the little cupy baby had no clothes and I got told I was an evil child, I was part of the devil's domain and all this and that because I was filling it in, colouring it in with lead pencil. I got a caning over that. I remember that caning. Very bad. Amongst each other we never denied our culture. It was really important to us. And even speaking the tongue, you know, a lot of people spoke the tongue. I couldn't even pronounce the words properly myself, but right. tried. Yeah.
2: yeah. So they did. They did speak language at that yes. stage. Yeah. Right.
8: And a lot. Of, you weren't allowed to, of course. No. But yeah, a lot of them did. If they were amongst themselves, yes. And you know, they'd just talk of the past and things like that. So you learned your history by just talking and yarning. I remember the fact of uh, Aboriginals being able to vote which was, I think, February sometime 1967. I remember doing a march from Aboriginal Health Centre at Fitzroy Street, Fitzroy Street going yeah. up to Parliament House. Yeah. I was there. Yeah, and that was, we were protesting about things and then we protested about the land belonging to certain people in Mildura, about the right for Aboriginal people to be able to vote was the most important thing that I can remember. Uh, There were other issues of people being locked up for no reason at all really because you were seen with another person and you didn't have a pound in your pocket so you're booked for vagrancy you're booked for associate with a known criminal and any little stupid thing and it was only because you were a curie or you were in the company of curies so you got labeled no good. They started on going to the prison and teaching the Māoris the culture back again and the language and and teaching them their self-worth and self-respect. Got people that were on CBOs, which is a community-based order, going to Māori meat Mm. places and getting them to do their carving back and things like that and the family doing like family you'll see on some maris you'll see tattoos which represents their family Mm. what tribe whether like my husband's tribe was a napui tribe Mm. so it represents those things my kids brought home kids and i mind them kids that ran away from home Mm. because they were having troubles and stuff like that Mm. the door was always open because i've been living on the street myself when i was younger and i know how hard it is and you don't want to live on the street but sometimes it's safer to sleep out than what it is to be at home Mm. and you know especially if you've got a a person in your family that's got a problem whether it be a drug problem or an alcoholic problem you seem to suffer mentally the abuse and you take it with it's a piece of baggage that comes with you all the time and if you're a street person or an institution person you become that institutionalized they are the only people that you can associate with because you understand each other We'd look after one another and, like, if you were on the street, you'd try and get with the females to sleep because you knew if the men invited you home, it was for only one thing. But yes. sometimes you would have to give in to that because it was the only way you were going to have a shower and a feed and mm. and, and things like that. So, and a lot of girls, they end up working on the streets. I was lucky I didn't. Mm. I was very determined, you know, that I was going to live my life the way I, I wanted to live it. So I just went as they call it now, couch hopping from one place to another. And I was very lucky because I knew a lot of curry people and I never got abused or used by any of them. I was in deficit custody with Reg Blow, Uncle Mm -hmm. Reg. I joined that because I believed in, because I've seen so many things happen. Apart from having foster kids, I heard the pain that was going with them and I didn't Want them in white institutions and things like that because then they weren't learning respect, they weren't learning culture. I was a stickler for culture. and Why do you think culture's so important? Because it's a belonging. It's a belonging. And you don't know who you are until you start getting back to your culture. I think everybody has a right to know where they are from and I think all, whatever culture, and ours is the oldest culture, uh, we have a right to know that. And then once you start knowing that, you start belonging. I'd done a painting once, and this one woman wanted to see who the artist was. And when I went up, she just looked at me strange. And she said, this, you know, you can get to a lot of trouble doing Aboriginal work. I said, I'm quite aware of that, you know. And I said, if you had a read the paper, you would have seen where I'm from and, and things like that, my resolution number and, and all this my identity she said my dear looking at you you're so white she said you really don't have to tell anyone you're aboriginal and i I was absolutely shocked Mm. i said well why should i hide my identity why should i be ashamed of my grandmother's side so i thought for an educated woman you're pretty much of a (laughs) (laughs)
2: a-hole
8: i would go out in st kilda and we would feed um homeless people and give them blankets and clothes and stuff like that. Got to know a lot of the working people there, girls and boys. And then half the time, if they were really, really young, I'd take them home. Institutions started gradually closing down at that time. A lot of the kids that were very, very young, I would take them home because I knew that they would be put into Tarana. Some of them, because they were a little bit autistic or something like that, in those days they were put in Royal Park Receiving Depot or Mont Park which I don't know if anybody knows, are mental institutions. Park, yes, and, and, and Yes, yeah, on and on. yeah, yeah. Even if you took epileptic fits, you were put out in those places. So it was a pretty hard life in that way. Mm. So I used to take some of the kids home, whether they'd be white or black, I didn't care.
2: Do you think things are actually getting worse or better?
8: Well, it's because the government's closing everything down. It's all money, 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 money. They're not worried about people. I mean, on the peninsula, there's a Navy base that's been empty for 20-odd years that I know of. I went to a Member of Parliament and spoke to her about it, and I said, why can't we, instead of breaking up families, why can we not put these families that are drug addicts out there start educating them keep the families together so they're working together Mm. kids are not being pulled away from their families and she said she would bring it up at parliament nothing's ever happened it's still there it's still empty i mean they've got everything there all the facilities people shouldn't have to be living on the street they should be in something like that uh, in, in Sydney, the council, you go to the council and you say, right, I'm homeless, can you give me an address of where I can sleep? Buildings that are going to be pulled down, mm-hmm. they have it written down mm-hmm. and they give them that address. They can stay there right. until you know it's time for someone to build on that land. Why can't they do that here? You don't have to go overseas. It's right here. Get out one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, and just go into the city and look in the doorways, and you'll see it. Mm. Go down to the bridge in Frankston. There's people sleeping underneath the bridge. There's families because there's a domestic issue going on because of drugs and the husband's using all the money. They're sleeping in cars. What does the council do? Move a mum, put a sticker there, pay a fine. Mm. They can't even pay rent. How can they pay a fine? Mm. I've walked in their shoes and I know how hard it is to exist. And I know how hard it is when you think I've had enough, I want to commit suicide. Don't think it's a gutless way out or anything like that. It's hard when you think I've had enough. It is really hard and then you survive and you think, you know, life is good. There are good people. We did have a church in Frankston mm. that was giving out breakfast and and allowing people to have a shower. Mm. But apparently one day a young guy, he jumped the counter, frightened the hell out of the ladies and then jumped through the glass window. Oh, so they took a few days off and then they decided, you know, that they couldn't handle it. It was too violent and all this and that. So they closed it down so those people had nowhere to go. And then right next to it is the football ground. Now a lot of men were sleeping there they mm. weren't making any trouble they weren't drinking and always cleaned up after their cell what happened the police found out they were sleeping there so they went down and started locking them up and harassing them mm. what i can see and what i've heard from people mm. kids as well as adults know no. nothing is really changed Let's, we seem to be going backwards don't give people money i'll take take for a meal that's what I say when they ask me for money I'll take you for a meal anywhere you want to go Mm. don't judge people by what you see don't believe what you read in papers because they want to make money just go by your heart have a look outside one o'clock in the morning make it your business to see and you'll find that there's people out there that are totally lost and if you can help them. And that was
0: Maurice Hanare. And you've been listening to Radical Australia, uh, a pre-radiothon special program. Uh, Please do tune in next week and please do pledge...